0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Dan Walsh. Dan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Josh. How are you?
0: I'm very good. And before I got on and started recording, I was on your site, and I clicked through to watch the race uh, in Beijing when you won in the Olympics. And now I know how it came out. I know that you guys were bronze, but I was like at the edge of my seat. I mean, am I right that you guys were like really far behind to about the halfway point? And I don't know if that was strategy or what. And maybe I should start with more about your background and stuff. But can I ask you about this race? Because everyone should go watch this.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the funniest thing about that race is that it was live at about 4 a.m. And it was the first time my now wife, we were, you know, had just been dating for a year. Her her parents had met my parents and my family. They all watched it live at 4 a.m. at my sister's house. And it was a nail biter. And no, yeah. it was not to plan. Um, you know, the... Goal was to try and win from wire to wire, right? From the first stroke to last. Uh, we still discuss, like, trying to figure out why the first 500 was slow, especially mm-hmm. since the second, third, and fourth 500, we were the fastest. <laughs> so you, it's one of those things where you're the fastest in the world for three quarters or something, but still mm-hmm. bronze. Um, but it was one of those moments where we weren't going to quit, and uh, we knew we had a really good push around the halfway mark, and it was a very distinct boom of energy of like we really came together as a as a cohesive team and then the rest is in that charge you know coming from last into that third place position and you know if you really watch the finish line it was between us and the brits and with the kind of the ebb and flow of the strokes of rowing if it was one stroke before or after the finish line it would have been us in silver versus the brits and both of us were you know coming down out for of the canadians um But the funny part is my siblings tell the story of them then having a a really big party later on that afternoon when it was on primetime. And so my high school wrestling coach had convinced a a local bar in my hometown, Norwalk, Connecticut, to say, Hey, can the Walsh's watch this here on your all your big screen TVs? And they said, Sure, invite whoever you want. My dad said something like 200 people show up and uh, they're watching it again. (laughs) My siblings are like screaming their heads off like maybe they're gonna win this time yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um lo and behold even with all that willpower you can't you know change the past but uh you know that's it is a really fantastic race and um you know as time has passed from 2008 and you know the hardest thing i think about when you try and achieve something like that and especially for me is like rowing saved my life it really came in at a time when there's a lot of family trauma going on in it totally redirected my life to you know be where I am now having a conversation with you is um for a long time I I hated the fact that I you know like I said only got bronze you know I I was the spare in 2004 when they did win gold and they set a world record and uh you know to watch that from the stands and be so viscerally close and then literally 1.2 seconds away from doing it again there was a lot of self-hate that I had that it was my fault or could have done better or all these loss aversion things of like why we didn't win gold. And, um, I can say like, you know, therapy helping talking about it and then having the opportunity to realize that, you know, I won an Olympic medal, right. I didn't lose anything. I won an Olympic medal. And I have friends that didn't make the Olympic team, let alone make the national team. And, you know, they would take my left nut (laughs) and just have (laughs) one. Um, but it's, uh, it's more so like, I am actually really thankful for some ways not winning because it's like, there, I have the rest of my life. And that is such a valuable lesson of like, you know, teaching my children of like, not to, not to make sour grapes of something great. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that when I watch that race now, I see it and I'm like, God, I am so lucky just to be able to perform at that level, at that speed, at that accuracy. And amongst those great athletes, you know, that was you know, the, the Olympics have so many events and like those three like a lot of the countries in that final all really prioritize that boat. Like they were putting their best athletes in that boat. And like, it's, it's a gauntlet. It's a, you know, it's a, it's modern day Coliseum gladiator where you're trying to put your best thing forward. And in a lot of ways, I'm happy I survived and came away with something these days, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun race. It's a fun race. And, um, and just for the purity of sport, Mm -hmm. you should watch it just to be like, Holy shit. Like, this was a race.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because I I had all sorts of other things I wanted to talk to you about, and I couldn't help but start with that. So, yeah, I'll put the link in the notes so that people can go watch that race, even though they know how how it's going to end. You will will feel like, oh, (laughs) one more stroke. Or if it – yeah, if it had been the alternate stroking with the Brits. Yeah.
1: And if you're British or Canadians, you're happy with the way it worked out anyway. (laughs) It's only if you're – if it's only if you like me or my friends or the U.S. that you're kind of disappointed, so –
0: Now, uh, some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about were, I mean, one is coaching because this podcast is about leadership, sustainability, leadership. And one of the big things about leadership and sustainability compared to other places is the intensity of the emotions. And the emotions are things that a lot of people don't like facing, like guilt and shame. And you've talked about, I've heard you talk about your coaches that you've gotten great coaching and you coach. And in sport, I mean, you face some challenges, emotional challenges that a lot of people don't. And I think that enables you – I presume that that enables you to coach others. There's another thing that's also – I've heard you talking about how um, uh, rowing is seen as an elite sport, not just elite – elitist sport. And your background is not elitist. (laughs) Not at all. And – Uh, there's your family and how you got into rowing from not rowing from not, not sport. And I, maybe that would be the best place to start. Do you mind sharing how you went from not rowing into rowing and what your childhood, how that factored into your childhood?
1: Yeah. It's, um, like I always say is that I, I was surrounded by trauma, but I didn't necessarily have that much that I experienced myself. And uh, what I mean by that is, so I'm the youngest by 10 years to my next sibling, my brother. Um, and then we have my two sisters who are uh, then 11 and 12 years older than me. So they were kind of like Irish triplets, boom, boom, boom. And when they were young children, my father was an underwater contractor. And so, you know, dude was literally an astronaut on a budget, just going deep undersea. And he worked for this company at see. So they were, lived in Singapore for a year. They lived in uh, Alaska. And I think eventually, like as my, some of my father's colleagues started dying, cause it's a risky, you know, it's a risky industry. He and my mother decided like, no, we, you know, it's probably time to stop. And so they moved to Norwalk, Connecticut, got a house. Uh, this is just after they lived in Singapore for a year. Um, they were both born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, not a lot of education. So they were both high school dropouts. Um, and it started off with my cousins that were still in Brooklyn my two older cousins got involved with drug dealing and drug addiction, alcoholism, you know, alcoholism was rampant on both sides of the family, not necessarily like my parents. Um, and that starts to trickle in. And so my oldest cousin, Michael had, uh, his, his addiction to heroin and um, violence had gotten so bad. He took his own life and that kind of really rocked my older brother. You know, my older brother who was the baby of the family, um, all of a sudden has a baby brother, you know, elderly grandmother at home. And then his hero, his cousin who used to like protect him from his bullies dies. And, uh, my other cousin, Patrick, you know, Michael's cousin was already involved with it. And so my brother starts following suit and quickly got into substance abuse and gang violence and stuff like that. And so when I was probably, you know, when he's in high school, so that's like, you know, 16, 17, 18. So I'm six, seven, eight, it really peaked um, you know, in jail, uh, you know, he tells it, it's his story to tell, but, you know, he's involved in gang violence and they're you know dealing cocaine and all this stuff and having guns. Patrick winds up going to jail. Um, uh, I think, you know, my, he comes out, gets back addicted to crack and cocaine, takes his own life in the same way that his older brother did. Now my brother's on this path and in a lot of ways, my mom, uh, you know, at this point there's a hundred percent success rate that the males in my family are becoming delinquents. And, um, my pediatrician, who's kind of trying to help my parents again, with no education. And my dad went into contracting and, you know, the eighties was just recession after recession with that. So he couldn't find work. So unemployment and, you know, various just, you know, uh, welfare and stuff like that. And, you know, hearing fights about making sure we can pay the mortgage. Uh, sisters, you know, are having issues with themselves, you know, like trying to go to college and some failure to launch stuff. And so I was really loved and protected by this cohort of adults and young adults. And so like I was very loved and taken care of. But this periphery of chaos is around me. So it's not like it didn't affect me. And what do you do with something that you're trying to protect sometimes as you over insulate it? so I was very sheltered. So I was very alone and isolated and scared. I was scared of everything. And a pediatrician decides to start a rowing program in Norwalk, Connecticut for the under-resourced kids. I qualified and, um, he kind of put his arm around me and said, this is a great opportunity. Don't fuck it up. (laughs)
0: Uh
1: And, uh, I think that helped, right? Somebody kind of took me out of this. My parents felt safe about it. Um, it wasn't football. It wasn't contact. It was on the water. You know, my dad was always a waterman, obviously being an underwater contractor. So he loved the idea. In fact, he did what was called master's rowing, which just means you're old enough. You know, you're not in college anymore. He had done a couple seasons with it before I started and really loved it. Uh, my sister even tried it. So they had kind of experienced the rowing club and realized it was a good spot. And my brother also then went into recovery shortly after I started rowing. And he now runs his own recovery business. I mean, talk about somebody who's (laughs) uses outdoor education to do it. Um, He's his own amazing story. But that model of like, if this dude can go to an AA meeting and stay sober, I can go to practice. Right. It can't be that hard. And a lot of success, I believe, is just being consistent. And so... I love practice and it was the only way I got out of this protective bubble of my mom. who was super overprotective. Otherwise I was stuck in the house or in my yard and I'm adventurous by nature. So it was like, if I went to practice, I didn't have to be home. If I went to practice, I could go to races. If I could go to practice, I could, you know, I eventually started wrestling and that was my other love. I didn't have to be home if I was doing sports It became my freedom. But then to the elitism part of it is, you know, rowing does come from, especially in the U.S., a very elite background. You know, all our Ivy league institutions, in fact, intercollegiate sports wouldn't exist without rowing, probably. Uh, Harvard and Yale were the first two time two colleges decided to compete. And now here we are at the NCAA, you know, how many hundreds of years later. So um, it's very steeped in that elitism, that classism. And uh, so as soon as Norwalk started having this program grow... Darien, New Canaan, Westport, Weston, these affluent communities start sending their kids to the roaming program. And it was embarrassing to be the poor kid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these kids are showing up in their cars and they have houses with pools. And like I said, we, between my parents' work ethic, which is where I get it, they always had a job, you know, whether it was waitressing or retail or something, they always had a job. So luckily we never had to lose the house or anything. But like it was embarrassing to like I didn't want people to come to my house in our walk when they talked about their mansions in New Canaan with their guest houses. And, you know, I I would lie and say I would ride my bike to practice for training um, because I was embarrassed to say I didn't have a car. But in reality is like eventually I realized, oh, yeah, well, I am getting fitter from doing this. So it became an advantage. But um it was really hard to be in this very elite sport as someone who was not necessarily elite but the beauty of it was on the water i had everything that they wanted which was speed and um it gave me a lot of confidence which is like the only currency that matters on the water is how fast you are and i'm the fucking fastest and uh it really helped it really helped take me out of my shell in fact if you were to tell any of my siblings at that age you know that age of 11 that i would be let alone a world class athlete but doing podcasts with someone who's a best-selling author, right? Like, you'd be like, no fucking way. But, uh, you know, here we are. And I think that the meritocracy of sport and the opportunity of being on a field where all that matters is your performance and it washes away your poverty, it washes away your race, it washes away your religion. it It brings it down to just like how willing are you to work hard and be gritty to achieve. And the, Beauty about, for me, rowing or any team sport is the only way to really be good at it, which I think ties in the leadership, is how good are you at enabling those around you to be as great as you? Because that's it. All right.
0: I got to ask you a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> One of them is, I, I lost track of who did what, but I think your brother was doing heroin.
1: He No, he was, it was the cousins. Cousins were crack and heroin. Uh, Tim, luckily, was mostly, his was alcohol. Right, which he dubs as the worst of them all. But he was alcoholism led him to all the party drugs. Um, he says thankfully he never got addicted to, or never really got on any needles. So,
0: the reason I ask is that when I think of rowing, so I got my—I don't know if you can see—it's right here. Sorry, the listeners can't see it, but my rowing <laughs> machine, my Concept Two, is right behind me, and it's got two and a half million meters on it, which is probably what you do—you would do in like a training. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not anymore. But, you do more than me now.
0: Well, the. All right. I got to share it because it, when I row a, te- a Tabata, and I'm 51 years old now, so I can't do what I did before. But even then, I only started doing it like in my 30s, I think. But um I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like my lungs are going to like come out. And I feel like, I mean, because it, 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 it gets everything, right? It's like it, it's the most whole body thing, which means there's nothing that breaks first, which means everything. You feel like you're dying. Is it like that? It, or maybe you, you get past that in some way.
1: No. Rowing is, a, I mean, it's unique physiologically. It's a, you know, it's triple extension sitting on your ass. So it's like doing power cleans repetitively or deep squats repetitively or, um, you know, it's a very complex movement that goes across all joints of your body. Uh, you're using your legs as your prime mover, right? So you're using your quads and your hamstrings and your glutes, which are your largest muscles, which consume a ton of oxygen and glycogen. Um, but then you're finishing it off with stabilizing. through you know. So there is no escape. When you get good at it, you just learn to endure more pain for less time. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, it's, <laughs> So it's getting good at it doesn't make it easier by any means. In fact, it's um, it's an exponential curve of suffering.
0: <laughs> now, the reason I ask this is that you were looking up to your brother as a source of inspiration. And there's asked about heroin. Okay, so it's alcohol, but party drugs if he was... I'm guessing that he's getting... His activity is in the moment while he's doing it, he's having fun. Something like that. It might be miserable for the rest of his life. And while you're doing what you're doing, you're feeling miserable. (laughs) So do you see how there's this weird twist there of you're looking up to someone whose activity is to make life go away, and yours is to get into it more?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would have to say that Especially once you start getting to the elite athlete standpoint, like that notoriety or the idea of being the best in the world becomes its own obsession slash addiction too. I mean, Mm -hmm. there were were times when I, you know, describe like, you know, how would you describe somebody that's, you know, living in couches and looking, you know, looking for change to pay for their bills and you know, scraping together anything they could to eat. They're like, oh my God, that sounds like an addict. And I was like, yeah, well, we're an Olympian. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, we have Paris coming up in a year and you're going to hear great stories about how athletes make shit money and they have to live in like 10 people to an apartment and they're scraping every penny together to pursue this dream. And, you know, it's just funny because it's not just my story, but there are plenty of Olympic athletes that do that for the glory of being the best in the world. And that somehow you know, there'll be five or six athletes at NBC and whoever the flight, you know, the USOC dubs to be the chosen ones that will be millionaires. And, you know, they may have had that struggle at some point, but now they get all the sponsorships and they get all the TV ads and they get all the, and I get it. Like, you know, Kerry Walsh and volleyball was great and the track and field athletes are easy to film. And Michael Phelps was a you know obviously a phenom, but it's like, there's, you know, there's 10,000 Olympians globally. You'd probably be amazed about how many U.S. ones are in, like, in huge amounts of debt when they come out of the games, let alone the ones that don't make it. And so like, there's this, this really weird difference of like, but you want to be the best in the world so you endure whatever it has to, you have to do to get there. And the, that grittiness of like, fuck it, I'll find change in the couch to pay for my car payment so I can get to practice. If my car breaks down, I'll start to run. And if I can't run, I'll get a ride. Like you just, there's no quit. And so I think my brother and I connect, which is like, to your point is like, I actually dove into wrestling and rowing because of how intense they were and how much they actually did hurt. That hurt felt good compared to the hurt of being alone and scared. Right? Like. I don't think of myself as a tough person by any means. I think I'm incredibly vulnerable and, and very emotional. Um, like, and, uh, I kind of just like those two sports because I was faking being tough. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's kind of like you fake it till you make it. (laughs) Cause you talk to like my teammates and people around me like, dude, Walsh is one tough motherfucker. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think to your point, like, Tim was definitely numbing himself from some his trauma and his pain, but I was too.
0: I'm just, so I'm working on my book now and I'm talking about how I've been doing this series of acting on my – trying to live more sustainably. Ten years ago, I challenged myself to go for a week without buying packaged food. I made it two and a half weeks and I kept going and I, like, I found out I liked the experience. Then I challenged myself to go without flying for a year. And I've, I've enjoyed that. I mean, in ways that are, if you, if you want me to go into it, I can then unplug my apartment. So now my apartment, I'm in my 11th month with my apartment disconnected from the electric grid. And since I can't put a permanent, uh, installation on my roof, cause I got a co-op board. They're never going to prove something like that. I get portable, uh, solar panels and a battery and I carry them up 11 flights, leave them there for a few hours, come back down, go back up again, get them. And people they keep describing me as extreme. What I was just writing about was how when I'm going up and down the stairs, at first I felt like, okay, it's um, I'm doing it instead of cardio. So I would take a little time from cardio and say the stairs count. Then I think it's kind of like a ritual or something. I'm getting out of it that way. But then I started realizing that, like I started thinking about athletes training. And like, this is nothing. Like imagine you went to the rowing to try to get on the Olympics rowing saying, I climbed eleven flights of stairs every day twice. That would be like that's nothing, right? I mean, that's it's so laughable.
1: It it's and it isn't it isn't though because I even, like it's different because you do you would do a workout and then like we would go to worlds, okay, like the world championships. So there's a world championships every year. There's not an Olympics, and uh, and everyone would like rush into the elevator, right, and be like, why are you taking the elevator? You're elite lead athletes, like we're tapering. Don't want to no no lost no no lost energy. Don't want to get tired of taking the stairs. Or tape like we gotta be you gotta be it's like you still play the dumb mind games. It's like, oh I'm at practice, I'm gonna give it my all. Oh, I'm out of practice, I'm lazy as hell. <laughs> like uh-huh. like let's sit down and play Halo all day versus you know, do something else. So it's a I mean in, in some ways it is a sustainability mindset. You only have so many resources to give and you wanna be as efficient as you can with those resources. But like you also have the freaks where and I think I went into both camps, but to your point where it's like, if I was in a training block, okay, 11 flights of stairs twice a day was extra training. It was extra toughness. Um, You know, riding my bike to practice versus taking a car was extra, you know, extra training, extra practice. And I think it's like, not to jump around too much, but like it segues into what I think is sustainability. Is like, you know, talking to you lots of times is like focusing on what am I gaining when I take something away?
0: Yeah, that's, To be, okay, you're you're talking about what it takes to become an Olympic best in the world athlete. At the other end of the spectrum is pure self indulgent uh, addiction, you know, taking heroin, something like that might be the other end of the spectrum. But somewhere in between is, I think our culture has, is like, if it's, if something can be comfortable and convenient, go for the comfort and convenience. And I think that you don't have to try to become a great athlete just to recognize that there's more meaning and there's something in meaning and purpose working for something. And I feel like I'm, what I'm doing is it's more than most, but that's the, the bigger challenge for me is not living sustainably. It's living sustainably in a culture that disdains sustainability. It's the friction with other people. It's a big challenge of them calling me extreme when I don't think that I'm being extreme. And I mean, certainly if there was a big cultural shift, and i could i didn't have to go up the roof all the time if there was a permanent installation and I just had wires bring the power down but i'm still down i'm using like five percent of what I used to use before with no loss of quality of life or gain of it how do we the coaching that i'm what i what i'm haven't been able to get to is where people look forward to i don't know how to put it it's like It's not like earning your energy, but it's, you know, like, it's not just everything's handed to you. That is not a better... Here, when I was a kid growing up, there were definitely kids in my class who were spoiled. And if you ask them, do you want your parents to say no to you sometimes, they would say no. Of course, I want everything. Everyone else... And I hope I'm not talking about myself. I don't think I was spoiled. But I think if you ask... Anyone else would say their lives will be better, even by their own standards... If they have to be a bit humble sometimes, if they have, if they get told no sometimes. And I think there's a lack of that. And I, I, I think that, um, I don't know how to get that across. Like that's my, one of my leadership challenges is how to change culture to want to be humble.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're at a big challenge too, is a, is this in this world of like, which is like knowledge and free thought and stuff like podcasts and, to be able to have conversations and nothing's in the soundbite. Like one, someone's going to listen to this and try and look for key soundbites from an Olympian on how to be a fast performer, right? Like whatever Google search they think. Um, it's like, it, you know, when you and I talked once too, it's like I asked you straight, like if you have kids, right? Like for that empathy bridge of what it's like. And I loved your response. You're like, just because I have kids, this means I don't have any more less ability to love. And it's, um, I think it's the empathetic bridge of like, When I coach especially young kids and I coach young kids from affluent communities is they almost have to be taught what a process is and that is what the reward is right the reward is the work it's not the result because like winning is the cheapest fucking emotion you can have you know and I've gravitated towards it oh I just want to win I want to win and it's like it is an addiction and it's like everybody wants to win you can ask the biggest loser on the planet if they want to win and they're going to say yeah I want to win but it's like, do I want to be in the process of winning? Um, because you are going to lose something, right? Like training for the Olympics is like you know eating ten thousand calories a day because you're a rower and you're six seven. Like you risk losing weight. You know, well, everybody else wants to lose weight, but you gotta do it by work. You know, by going through a process. And it's like to, I, I'm a little rambly here because I think it's really, it is a problem with where we are as a society because like comfort feels nice. Like that's where I am now is I am not in the pursuit of excellence outside of wanting to be a very present father and husband. That's it. Like that is my main motivation is I want to be here for my wife and children as often as I can, especially for my children, because it's, this is the process of helping them become adults. And if I'm absent from that process, Which is I have a lot of friends that I, you know, work really hard and they're very determined and they're in all like the big ticket jobs like doctors, lawyers, finance, private equity, activism, development, and they travel a lot and they're not there a lot. And, you know, it's like I'm trying to listen to our elders of wisdom who are like, hey, enjoy it while you can because it goes by fast. Mm -hmm. And when you're in it. Right. And I think that's the thing about parenting or training for the Olympics when you're in the gauntlet, it is extremely uncomfortable. You know, like my daughter the other day, who's seven, like, she basically was like at the dinner table and just goes, I don't look like anybody else. And we're like, what's up? She's like, well, I'm ugly. And she's gorgeous. She's a gorgeous child, you know, and it's like, holy fuck. Like, here we are like here. She's on the dawn of her self-expression and her awareness and who she is. And now she's Going through this evolutionary stat, you know, boom, I'm competing, Mm -hmm. right? I'm in Darwinism now. I am not attractive as this person. So, therefore, my opportunities are less and I have to feel less about myself. And it was so visceral. And, you know, I reacted by like stopping what I was doing, looking her in the eye and said, I don't ever want to hear you say that about yourself again. You are gorgeous. But I'm also very sorry that you feel that way because everybody feels that way about themselves sometimes. And I'm sorry that you're in this right now, but trust me, you are beautiful and you are worth something. And trust me, like, look around. You are a beautiful human, my daughter, Stella, and I love you. And I'm sorry you feel this way. Like I validated the struggle she was in. She was in the process of self-worth and I couldn't just give it to her and be like, oh, honey, you're pretty. Don't worry about it. Like I couldn't dismiss her. And I think that's where we have to be as leaders or as coaches is that we can't dismiss how somebody feels in the moment of their struggle, but we can't alleviate their suffering because that is their gauntlet. And that's this instant gratification that we're in is like, we're where we are because mostly people want to be warm and fed and feel safe. And like our food systems, our heating systems, And our houses are designed to do those three things. It's just that, like, it's just gone too far. But it's those three things of, like, er, having to earn that makes it feel more like a home, right? Or having to work for it makes it feel more like a, you know, like a reverence. I think we've lost our reverence of the process.
0: Yeah, I think that, yeah, we the. it used to be something, I mean, if you wanted a meal... You had to climb a tree and pick it off the branches. or You had to dig it out. or You had to hunt it. And it probably – one of my phrases, home-cooked tastes better even when it tastes worse. <laughs> I find that to be the case.
1: The Ikea, the Ikea furniture principle, right? Because like, you put it together? Yeah. Nobody wants to throw it out because it's like, ah, oh, I had to work so hard on this thing. you know, But it's not like <laughs> – I used to work as a mover. Like they'll never survive the move.
0: <laughs> one of the challenges that uh, – w- when you talk to your daughter – You have a one-on-one relationship with her. And a question I ask a lot of leaders is how much of leadership – I ask of effective leaders, very effective leaders is how much of listening – how much of leadership is listening? But I want to ask you something here that I I presume that you knew – part of knowing what to say to her came from you hearing what was important to her over the course of years leading up to there. And I presume that you'll keep refining based on listening –
1: yeah. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to take my parenting in the same way that I took my athleticism and, um, I wanted as much knowledge as I could get. Like I, that's why I studied athletic training, exercise physiology is I didn't want somebody to tell me how to train my body and they may have advice for me. Um, it's with parenting is like, I try and read about parenting. And I think coaching college athletes and adolescents also helped me like kind of prepare for the end game. Like I kind of saw, the I saw the final and all the questions, like, what are the, what are the answers for the final? now I just got to go back and study those, um, or at least the subjects to help me. And so I think with my children is I let them lead, I let them lead me to, you know, what games do they want to play? And I try and provide them structure to fail. Right, and be there for them during their failures, and listen to what they feel like they're struggling out. And then other times, I'm just like, figure it out. And I watch them from a distance where that I know they're safe, but they don't know that I'm looking through the window or something to to see how they deal with their struggles. You know, let them cry, uh, let them be mad at me. You know, my four year old called me the worst daddy ever one day because I told her if she didn't clean up the basement, I was going to put take all of her toys. She didn't clean it. So I put them all on my shelf and said, they're my toys now. Told you. (laughs) And she's like, you're the worst daddy ever. And my instinct was like, Oh, my child's hurting. Let me give her the toys back. But like, I had to be stoic in the moment, like, and say, no, honey, I love you. You didn't clean up your toys. And I don't use the word, but there is no, but like, it's pragmatic. It's like, you didn't clean up your toys. I love you. They're mine now. And then redemption, right? I think redemption is the part of leadership that people miss is. Hey, you done fucked up? Here is your path to redemption. It's a little bit harder than what was originally going to happen because you ignored that process the first time. Now you, here's the next process to get back. It's a little bit harder. It's kind of like it's, you know, it's fictional, but Coach Carter with Samuel Jackson, where if guys miss practice, they had to do, you know, an insurmountable amount of push ups and wind sprints and stuff to get back on the team. Um, and uh, you know, the guys just started doing it. And then eventually, like the team did it to help alleviate the amount of insurmountable things the team wanted to be part of. But I think that's you got to have a redemption arc along with the work. And I think especially in sports, you know, sports are just the modern modern day hero's journey. Like, luckily, we don't have gladiatorial arenas anymore and we don't have, um, you know, fights to the death of sport. And we're not doing knights in shining armor clashing. But we still like the hero's journey. And so there needs to be a redemption arc to that when you fail. When you skip the process for immediate gain, you have to have a redemption arc for that. And that's kind of what I try and do through my training programs. And I try and do it my parenting. Does she
0: have their choice back?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, is on, she, she is only four.
0: So now here's a big challenge that when we're working one-on-one, it's different than when we're working one-to-many. And especially, I mean, in sustainability, there's a big challenge of something like 330 million Americans are living unsustainably. And they're all reinforcing each other's beliefs of what I do doesn't matter and only governments and corporations can make a difference and the plane was going to fly anyway and things like that. How do we do it with large numbers of people?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's – I think the success – I think the success that I had with the high school team, especially because that the high school team that I coached was um, first, it was a subgroup of like, so the team that I coached, there was the, the heavyweight, you know, boys quad that was the perennial national champion coached by the owner of the club. And they had won several national champions. And in fact, they had won back to back when I came in. And so then I was put in charge of the lightweight group. And so, you know, the lightweight group, by distinction were lighter. So therefore they had a different classification and had different events to win a national championship. And then you had the, the, the girls team as well. And then the girls had a lightweight team. And so the good thing for me, like a couple interesting things happened while I was there. But the first one was, is that because of my background, my uh, boss and, you know, my boss had coached me in high school at one point too. So we had a familiar relationship um, he trusted my ability in the sport because I was an Olympian and had the degree. So, you know, we would have conflict about what we should train, but ultimately he trusted that I was doing the right thing. So I had a lot to do with the training program and then coaching his team. But all I've tried to really do is to create an environment where everybody thought that their part in it was valuable. So it's like, if you're on this team, you are equal, and I think rowing's unique is because the the toughest person in the world is the worst person on a rowing team because they have to do all the same work slower than everybody else, and then they show back up the next day. <laughs> you know? And it's something that I did not empathize with because, luckily, genetically, I was usually even if I didn't try hard, one of the fastest. So, um, but that's the that's the part I think the first thing you need to do is try and. There's always going to be the talented group that it seems easy for, for that person that is working as hard as them, but this doesn't have the talent to do it and make that person feel valuable. Like, I think that's the, that's the key to a good team is having everybody acknowledge that we are only as strongest as the weakest link. And if we do not support that weakest link, the lowest, so on race, on race day, right? When we're tapering, the workouts are always based off the lowest common denominator, which means that if. If somebody doesn't feel good, we practice to their threshold, not the person who's feeling the best. Um, and I think when you create that type of group, right, everybody, you know, it's cliche that the rising tide raises all you know ships. That was a mindset that I had to take on when I was the alternate for in 2004. Like I had to, you know, in some ways as an alternate, you have a tremendous amount of emotional power in that moment because you can be bitter and angry and constantly air your frustrations like, fuck this. And you guys get to race and I don't, and you know I should be in the boat and like, you know, this is unfair. And I've been around alternate, you know, there was a, uh, one of the teammates of mine from Northeastern was a Canadian alternate. You got to the Olympics and just bounced, took the free ride and just left. And, wow. you know, it's like, you know, it's a level of selfishness that I never understood. And especially for me is like, I decided like, all right, well, if my role in this Olympic, you know, U.S. rowing as a cohort was like, okay, the entire rowing world in the, or the entire American rowing situation, we want to win the eight, right? We want to win the eight at the Olympics. So there's going to be a lot of collateral dampage because there's only nine people that can race that. So of the 40 athletes that are training, you know, only nine of them are going to get that gold. And But in the training of that, everyone felt like they had an opportunity to get there. And so therefore, everybody was training for that singular goal. And as the attrition started to happen, it did feel like for most people, not all of them, that it was like, OK, well, I'm contributing to this goal and I want to be part of this goal of winning the Olympics and setting a world record. And I think I really had the, like, the spotlight on that emotional bifurcation because I was the last guy to not be in the boat. <laughs> <No>? So <laughs> I was really on the cusp of it. And I remember talking to my sister and telling her I was the spare and being really angry and crying and like, like screaming. And she said, well, are you the best spare? Are you the best person to be the spare? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm the ninth guy or the 10th guy. of the coxswain. And um, she's like, can anybody be a better spare than you? I was like, no. Like, so she just played into like the ego, right? Like, no, I'm the best still. I'm the best at this role. And I think that's the key, right? Is like, no, I wasn't good enough to be in the boat. Right or sure? Maybe I was. I just there's only nine seats, but God damn it! If I want to prove him the best, and this is my role, then I I have to prove I'm the best spare. And that was it. I was going to be but the, the best. Yeah.
0: What you're sharing is like so opposite of what the predominant message is of of what I do doesn't matter, and everyone's saying it about each other. Like, oh, what you do doesn't matter. It's the government's corporations. The other ones have to change. Well, maybe they do, but they're not going to change first. No. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm, as you're speaking, I'm trying to think of like how to. Incorporate this in of, of what you do matters. Everything, like yeah. everyone depends on everyone. If you're
1: trying to be the best at something, anything, then what you do matters. It has an impact, period. So as soon as you decide not to put your effort into something, then of course you're going to fail. And collectively, everything around you is going to fail. And so, like, for me to be the spare, I was going to be the best damn spare at the Olympics. I was going to be there for the guys if they needed rides, if they needed food. Like, what do you guys need? How can I help? How can I be of service? And I think that ultimately is what, like, we have been consumers for so long because of the luxury that we have to go back to being of service. Like, I, I am optimistic about our future because I do feel like we're on the cusp of a paradigm shift of being of service to the earth versus of it being of service to us. But it's not going to come same thing as trying to be the best at something without collateral damage and i think that's what our goal is as leaders is like how do we stop the collateral damage and that's one of the things where like as much as disagreements i had with my coach at the olympic level is he made it very clear he's like look if you want to be an olympian you're young go for another one right or quit but if you quit don't complain because you quit right like he he was already thinking about the next Olympics, as in like, okay, I need to keep people engaged despite the fact that they're angry and they're angry at me. I think that's the tough thing about being a leader and a coach is like you're gonna piss people off. <laughs> like you're gonna you're going to be a dream maker and a dream taker. And I think that you know too many coaches get caught up in having to feel like they're they they don't balance enough stoicism and vulnerability. I think that's the, the myth of our relationship with leadership in America is that we think it's all stoicism and no vulnerability, or we think it's all vulnerability with no stoicism. And the reality is like they're two sides of the same coin. Like leadership is, I guess the final ramble is this, because this is what I say about people who ask me my advice on coaching is your team is one organism and everybody on that team has a role, just like the bacteria in your gut have a role to play with your colon and your colon has a thing to play with your small intestine Your small set. Like you can go through the whole thing, but everything has a distinct role. And so if you're tasking to me, like how do you keep a body alive? Well, the whole body has to be holistically together. That's your team, right? How do you keep a team alive? The team needs to train this hard, this amount of hours every day. But when So, but if you're an athlete, if you are a person and you need something from me as your coach, as your leader, let's say the brain or the heart, you know, there's two different, (laughs) there's two different, you know, ideologies on like a coach is the heart of the team or the, you know, the coach is the brain of the team. Um, But either way is like when an athlete comes to me, right. And you have to come to me as an individual and say, coach, I really want to go to prom. My parents never got to go to prom because they were pregnant with me. And it's a lot to me and my family to show that we, I get to go and I really love my girlfriend. I promise I'll be on practice in the morning. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to proddy. I just got to wear that tux and be in the limo for my mom. Well, that's, that's the kidney saying, hey, I'm in systemic failure and you need, you, I need help. The rest of the body is fine, but that kidney needs help. It needs attention. And so when an athlete comes to me as an athlete, I can be vulnerable with them and say, I'm really glad you shared that with me and we're going to handle this together. And so when we talk to the team tomorrow, we're going to say that you're going to go, you're going to prom and it's up to you to share why, right? But your teammates may own need to know why. And I bet you a surprise that they support you. Um, but I said, you can't ask me this in front of the team. You have to ask the team for the help here. And so it, it that worked every time. When I treated the team as an organism, right? The team needs to have no days off. The team needs to train more than everybody else. The team needs to be the toughest and the strongest, the most relentless on the water. But the parts of the team do need that individual attention when they need it. Not all the time, but when they need it. And I think that's where a good leader comes in is that they distinctly come in and say, you want to tell me what this organization needs to succeed? I'll tell you what the organization needs. You need to tell me what you need to succeed. That's me and you talking. If you ask me what you need in front of the team, you will lose to the team every time.
0: I want to ask you a whole bunch of advice on on coaching and leading here. I'm going to do the Spodik method with you that we talked about before, if that's okay with you. And one, I'd love to get—I think you'll like the experience—but also I'd love to get your thoughts on on it as a leadership coaching technique. So, is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something that you've yeah cared about enough to act on in some way?
1: Yeah, I mean, like in a in a crazy twist of fate, Carrie and I had a great situation from a family friend when we moved back to Narwhack. Um So we were—I was coaching only reason, so I was coaching at Northeastern, my alma mater, it was going well. I had a chance to bring the Olympics to Boston. It was a half successful thing is that we won the designation to for the USOC to host it. And then basically the city of Boston and the USOC had a disagreement and they just, it blew up over, literally overnight. It went from having like a dream job to no job. And Stella was born two weeks later. So it was a completely chaotic time. Decided to get back into coaching uh, you know, like I said, my high school coach, their their boathouse was under eminent domain. So I was like, let's go help there. My mom had just passed away too, so let's be closer to the family. And um, long story short, that's how I got back into coaching. And then I realized when my second kid was born, I'm spending all this time with other people's kids. I need to get out. So I started getting into trying to like build my own corporate team building stuff. And then I now work as a you know, selling rowing equipment to let me be present. The place we were renting, uh, switched owner or switched the trust of the apartment we rented, switched family members and they kicked us out in 2021. And, uh, I was already trying to figure out how to like make a small garden and stuff in my own backyard. And long story short, from, you know, the fortuitousness of my mom being an angel and always having my back, we now have this beautiful property in, uh, Clinton, Connecticut on six acres that's surrounded by forest. And I'm learning about the study of permaculture and creating a foraging forest. So how do I make my property not only just sustainable for me as much as possible, but is there any extra that I can give if somebody's in need? And so like, I'm novice as hell at it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, my wife and I just today, like we're trying to do seedlings versus go and purchase our, you know, uh, we're trying to grow our own seedlings from seeds because we suck at it. And it's hard, and um, but we want to have these failures now. So if shit goes worse, we have that skill set when it's bad. Not all of a sudden, like oh my god, the supply chain of food's over, We got to grow our own food. Like so, it's very much in the forefront of my mind. Um, but it's also challenging trying to raise two kids in what is their modern world, and not make them feel isolated or socially unacceptable, or not have some of the luxuries that you know technology and. You know our current environment do give us. So like yeah, I'm I'm at a loss as most people. Like it's front of my mind. You know, I I'm working with the I'm taking a Master Woodlands course in forestry to how to manage our forest better, especially in Connecticut because agriculture wiped out all the trees in the late 1800s and then early industrialization wiped them out again by the early 1900s for making coal-fired plants. And so now most of the trees in Connecticut, even though it's 60 it's the 60% most forested state in the in the country. It's only a tiny little state, right? In New England. And, um, and so, like, they need to be managed now because it's, it's, you know, the life of a tree is 300 years, but all these trees are babies. You know, they're adolescents. They're 100 years old and they need managing because humans have interfered too much with the natural, you know, environment of forests. So, uh, to answer your question, like, it's super in front of my mind. But, like…
0: With all these things that you're doing… If you're not good at them now, it, it tells me that there's something in your past that says that. Did you have an experience in nature that's like a quintessential moment or something that, that, uh, um, what nature means to you? What being outdoors or, or, you know, not in a polluting man made situation is there something that comes to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, if being outside was away from my overprotective mom, <laughs> like, you know, rowing on the body of water and like, No, it was a, it was the Norwalk Harbor and the beach were, you know, you could see that they were gross. And so you wanted to make them better. You wanted to see less garbage in them. Um, I mean, I've lived my life outdoors as far as I can remember. Okay.
0: You are talking about the gross parts. What about the non-gross parts? What was like, what, what's nature un-gross?
1: It just feels right. (laughs) It's just like, I, I don't, I, you know, I remember when we first met, like looking at your story about the sled, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, it's uh, it just feels right, and I think I think again, my brother comes in as an influence. Like it was outdoors that kept him. He loved being outdoors more than he loved using. And you know, it's like one of the things they say in his 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 company is called Adventure Recovery, and um, it's like we get high on the stoke. You know, it's the it's the being in the woods, being off trail. You know, foraging for your own fire, foraging your food as a walk. Like it's. You know, he was always outdoors. My sister, you know, all three of us worked for an outdoor education company called the Venture Workshop one time. Um, I think it was my parents moving out of Brooklyn. You know, like they saw probably what was happening with Brooklyn just becoming more and more urban. Like my dad grew up where Garrison Beach was like literally just a beach. And um, it's, I don't know, it's just always been being outside was just always where I were would want to be.
0: Um, and I'm picturing it's like you're on the water, you're on the beach, you're in the you're in the woods a bit.
1: Yeah, like is it a mix of those? It's all those. Like I, we live on Long Island Sound in Connecticut, so it's really nice. Like you have Long Island Sound, which is a salt body of water and it's tidal. So you and then mm-hmm. but you go you know 20 miles inside and you're in the woods, and then you have all these great rivers and um, you know Connecticut River, Housatonic River smaller rivers that lead into Long Island Sound. So it's a, it's a cool place to be. Like we lived in California when I, I trained in California and Chula Vista for a bunch of years. And I love California. You know, I, one of my favorite outdoor memories was, uh, snowboarding on big bear at, in the morning and then surfing at tourmaline in the afternoon. <laughs> Can't really do that in California. Video.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, uh, it's just outdoors feels right, especially for me because I'm always trying to prove to myself that I'm tough. It's like, mm. Yeah, outdoors is pretty unrelenting.
0: <laughs> so based on these emotions that you described, that outdoors is, feels right. That it, I mean, I heard a lot about family and um, getting away from trouble. I invite you, if you're up for it, to think of something you can do in your regular life, day to day. It could be a habit or could be a one-time thing or something in between. To manifest those feelings but in regular life. So to be able to create in something around you, this, this getting away, this just feeling right. Uh, and if you're up for it, there's with three constraints. And I want to clarify something that almost everyone hears something I didn't say. I'm not saying what can you do to help the environment. I'm not saying, oh, the New York Times or, or National Geographic says to do X, you should do that. This is purely for yourself. So, uh, it's not to fix the world. It's not to, uh, some obligation from outside. It's it's to manifest what you have, what you feel when you're in nature, but when you're not in nature. And uh, to, with three constraints, one is that you do it, it's something you're, you're not already doing. Something you do yourself. So not getting other people to do it, not saying, oh, I'll get my kids to do something. And it has to have some physical component so that when you're done, you don't have to measure anything, but you have to have some feeling of, I left things better than I found them. And most people, actually, a a small number of people, when I say this, they're like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X for a little while. I'll do X. But usually it takes a bit of back and forth because people feel like, actually, because people are so used to feeling like, oh, I have to do this in order to, you know, save the whales or something. But this isn't that. This is. Yeah. Want to give it a shot?
1: I mean, try and think of something that I do already or or am I creating something?
0: Something that you would do. To manifest those feelings
1: I mean, and
0: afterward to share how it went.
1: I mean, I'm doing that every day. I mean, that's that's this is this property for me.
0: Yeah, so something new that you're not already doing.
1: Oh man, I gotta do something new, new. It's part of my issue. Yeah, it, is, it,
0: it can be at that scale, but it doesn't have to be at that scale.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, truthfully, as simple as this is for me, and it's like I'm the I'm so resistant to it, is I literally have to sit outside and meditate and not try and actively change my environment and just be at peace like Mm -hmm. i already know like what i want to like that that to me is like and i have such a resistance to it i just don't enjoy meditation at all and i want to so bad
0: (laughs) did i hear right that it's something you want you've wanted to do but haven't done
1: i've done it i've i've tried to make it from I mean, I grew up watching like Kung Fu movies like Thirty Six Chambers and listening to Wu Tang, man, and like admiring the samurai and like seeing every indigenous culture has some form of like altering your consciousness through breathing. And I just there's something about me that's so fucking obstinate about doing it. I just can't enjoy it. It's like it feels too much like and I want it to be enjoying, and it's like that's the same thing of like I, I don't even take my own advice. It's like, we'll just enjoy the process. It's not the end goal of the meditation. It's not the enlightenment at the end of the breathing. It's doing the breathing. And uh, it's solely and it's only for me. And I won't do it consistently.
0: If you're implying that you might try that as your commitment slash experiment here, it might not work out, but it might. I mean, want to give that one a shot? I mean, does it fit the criteria? It,
1: it, I think the key something... for me is it's not – it's meditating outside. Right. Cause I always do it inside. And I think it's like, I, there's a, it's like, Oh, it's just so, especially again, where I am now, I literally have to step outside. I'm in nature. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, that's, there's nothing else that drives me that I feel like that I not already doing or not at least trying to do, but I'm not, like, I'm also going put that much thought to it. Right. Like you're asking me a pretty deep question for somebody that's trying to be pretty proactive of, and I am cocky enough. Like I've watched, you know, I, enough hero's journeys where I was like, I am trying to save the world. I'm trying to make my place a foraging forest to save the world for my kids.
0: Yeah, I want to distinguish here. I'm not talking about that.
1: I know you're you're not, but I'm saying like, I'm so wired in my head to think that way that it's like, I'm trying to disconnect that that neural link of like, Josh is asking a very specific question and I'm refusing to let it click. As
0: is everyone, because we're all, the the predominant message is if it doesn't scale, if it's not huge, it's not worth doing. And it can't possibly be enjoyable. It's Everyone's like, oh, I have to balance acting on, on the environment with the rest of my life. I'm like, that that's a mindset shift in need of happening. Because if people think that interacting with nature is a burden... You can get compliance on lots of things, but they're, it's just going to reinforce it. They're like, oh, uh. if I have to do it, obviously I don't want to. And I'm trying to get that mindset shift of, of oh, wait, this nature is, is a joy. Right. It is. And so I'm, it's not to fix things. It's to manifest what people have experienced before.
1: Yeah. And that, I, I think to me, is like the first, you know, go with your first gut instinct is like, for me it's to do is to do nothing right is to sit and I crave contentment more than anything in my life because it feels when the moments that I have that it's really nice and I've been ambitious to be the best in the world for so long like even the way I define being a father and husband is I want to be the best father and husband in the world. Like if there was a, if there was a contest for that, like, and I knew the training protocols for that, I would download it all and I would do it because I, then I want to have the award when I'm on my deathbed of being like, Dan was the best father and husband in the world. And it's such a aggressive way of looking at it. Whereas like truthfully the best way to be a father and husband is just to be here, just be here and almost non-reactionary. And that's why I feel like the, when you say like, what's the one thing that I can do that I'm not to create this connection is to do nothing and breathe in nature.
0: Would you begin to share how that went after doing it? Hell yeah.
1: Dude. All
0: right. So let's make it specific. How many times would you have to do it over how long of a period of time? So that if I said, how did it go? You'd have a meaningful answer.
1: I think it needs to be, I mean, the same way that I would say I measure any change in a training program, it has to be probably at least 30% of the current workload. Right, and so, and you also have to figure out if you can't, if you're already maxed out, what would you remove from that? So, I mean, I'm going to have to play less God of War, Ragnarok, unfortunately.
0: <laughs>
1: well, actually,
0: that there was one thing I had to go through, and and there's one of the points is uh, one of the constraints is that you have to leave something better than you found it. Right. If you're not drawing power, and instead you're sitting, then it meets that criteria because right. sometimes people don't have that doesn't work in but if, if you're in not playing video games and something is turned off that would be drawing power and instead you're sitting in nature it fits all three criteria. it's you doing it it's something you're not already doing
1: i also wouldn't probably stay up as late and i would wake up earlier more productive so i mean it's it's a it's literally a no-brainer and it's like the funny part is i already feel that <laughs> <laughs> but you want to play danny You want, you know, it's just funny. It's, it's the same thing with the training program. It's, uh, it's like, it's why I, you know, it's why I like talking to you. And it's why I think this works is because it's like, it forces you to be vulnerable and stoic with yourself. We all know the best thing about being a coach is when you go to the athletes and you say, what do you need to be, to do better? Like, what do you need to do to be better? And every athlete knows. And it's usually the one thing they don't want to do.
0: <laughs> so how, how, when should we schedule our next conversation to hear how it went?
1: Um, I mean, I would say with something like that. Probably two to three weeks would be enough to feel a visceral change. If I commit to doing it three days a week. Okay. Cause that's so, about 30% of a week. It's a little bit so, less, a little bit, less, a little right, bit more.
0: What I like to do is make it a smart goal. And what I, I I'm hearing like you're nailing it down. Like you're like three, at least three days a week for two to three weeks. Yeah. And do you need reminders or when you say it like you?
1: No, if I'm, if again, because like this is the beauty of teamwork and leadership. Mm -hmm. If I'm saying I'm doing this for this podcast or for my new friend, Josh, or for his goals, I am going to be more accountable for it than if I'm doing it for me. Because I'm being of service to you. And, and that's the fucked up thing about it, right? Is like it's not. It's to help me be better, but like that's right. It's to help me it's be. It's a mix of
0: both, right? Like I, I led you to it,
1: yeah. But I think you're not doing it for me. No, I'm going to do it because it's better for me. And if I'm, and here's the reality too. It's like a back to leadership teams. Like if I am up, if I am my best, I'm then able to enable the ability of others around me to be their best.
0: I want to pick up here next time because I, I want to hear how things went and I want to hear your thoughts as a coach of elites a, 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 and having been coached what I can add to it what works, what doesn't work and things like that yeah so um after we record but before we hang up can we get out the calendars and set a time? Ten four. yeah sure and can I just I, I'd love to pick up here next time yeah anything to cover before wrapping up here
1: No, I I mean, mostly I think that one of the, I think one of the tough things that I've realized too is becoming, for me, becoming an Olympian has felt organic through the whole process. Especially was, you know, I am the only born and raised Olympic medalist, I think the only Olympian in Norwalk, Connecticut. Like when I came home with the medal, there was another woman named Marie Mortel. And she had a gold medal in swimming from, oh, man, she was older than me. I forget which games. But she wasn't born in Norwalk. She had moved to Norwalk later in life, and I think after after she had already gone to the Olympics. And so they rightfully so honored her as at this dinner. they, they The town threw me a dinner, right? Like, and that's the crazy thing about it. It's like I have government proclamations, and I got to shake a president's hand, and like – All that shit when I say it out loud is like, God damn, that's pretentious. (laughs) Like, because I was just, I was just a scared, poor kid that just didn't want to be home. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it's as you become who you're becoming and you forget that you're, you're very lucky to like thread this needle of doing something that other people can. That's the one thing that I feel is is difficult you know even for you like to connect with you is like i am intimidated to converse with you because you're brilliant man you know uh-huh. you have a master's in, and you have a master's in in astrophysics and you have an mba and you're like you're doing you wrote so many books and it's like you are a doer in your own right i think for me i never want to be poor again getting evicted two years ago even though we weren't poor and obviously like we're to buy a house you know we, we couldn't be but like I have so much fear of not earning enough money. That is, that's what holds me back. And then to get money, you have to be ambitious, is what I feel like, you know? Um, and so I guess like having these conversations with you, I think what's important for guys like you and I is like, we have to, we have to figure out the best way possible to bridge the expert gap. So we don't seem like zealots and it's all about us and that we know everything. In fact, like the key to, to making this work is to show that we want to learn as much as they do. Like that, I, as a teacher or as a coach wants to learn as much as you do about an athlete. Like I see this as a symbiotic relationship. Yes, I have experience that can help us lead us to get our goal. But I need you to be open to teach me about you and your motivations and your desires so I can best use my experience and skill set to let you get to where I am, right? Maybe not physically or with the accolades of the Olympics, but like with the fact that like, hey, man, you are chasing out. You're trying to suck the marrow out of life somehow. And whatever it is that you want to suck the marrow out of life in, whether it's sustainability, whether it's being a parent, whether it's. Like, how are you doing that and how are you taking people with you? Like, I'm very upset that my hometown has not created a varsity rowing program yet at one of its high schools. You know, it pisses me off. I'm also not actively working every day to do it. But I, you know, part of the delusion was like, oh, if I do this, it's going to make, give more opportunities. And that's, and that's the other thing that I'm doing. I work with my buddy, R.J. Cooper, uh, who was in a documentary and wrote a book called The Most Beautiful Thing. They were the first all-black rowing team out of Chicago at the same time I was doing it. And the irony is he and his group of, like, under-resourced, poor kids, impoverished, and gang life in sh- west side of Chicago, right? Like, Norwalk's a small city. You can walk from the poor side to the rich side in no time. You lived in Philly. He lived in Chicago. Like, he had to walk blocks to see another white person, right? Like, a city is just—the scale of a city is just so much more in, in the diversity of it. And here he is, I feel more connected to him in the rowing world than all the people that I look like. Mm -hmm. And so I've always like, I'm in this really cool place where I feel like I'm a bridge. I'm in this bridge where I feel like I have the ability to make my sport look more like my country at the next Olympics. But I just want to be there to be that bridge for Arshay. That's it. I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy. I like the fact that Arshay is the guy and I just love being of service to him for this. And that's I, yeah.
0: I'm on the edge of my seat. There's like a cliffhanger. <laughs> so anyway, there's, there's so much I want to follow up next time. So like
1: what I want to do with you and with my to like to ask you your being of service to me is like if this method helps me refine my skills to be of of better service in my projects, then I owe it to myself to work on myself.
0: To be continued. To be continued. Dan Walsh, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, That's joshuaspodick.com slash
1: donate.